Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. When I got married, or before I did, I remember the one thing that my wife kept hinting at and saying was related to the diamond engagement ring, had nothing to do with the size. I kind of wish she had. I wish she'd told me the size. I wish she'd told me what design she wanted. I wish her friends knew her taste enough to tell me. They didn't, so I was kind of lost on that. But the one thing she wanted was to make sure that this wasn't it wasn't a blood diamond that she was carrying. So she cared enough about what she was carrying around that she did not want all the guilt of things that happen in the diamond industry. Well, joining me today is an entrepreneur, Ryan Shearman, who says, well, why don't we go a step beyond? How about if we look for one that doesn't pollute the earth? How about if we can find one that helps clean the earth? And he created a company. It's fairly new. I invited him here to talk about how he did this, how he went from idea to an actual diamond to and to sales. And I, I want to find out whether this actually works in the diamond industry. I Do people want something that they might consider fake? I'm looking at your eyes as I say the word fake to see, Ryan, if, if it pisses you off that I've said it. Does it bother you that I use the word fake sometimes? There are people, I'm sure it bothers. Um, I think the sentiment has shifted already. I think we've gotten over the hump collectively. Adoption has increased to such a such a point where the only people who are really trying to position lab-grown diamonds as fake are people who have invested interests in the, in the mine diamond business. But isn't the whole uh, idea even, of diamonds being amazing? It's not just the look of them because there are a lot of rocks that look good. It's that it's it's hard to find. There aren't a lot of them. There's an aspect to the story that touches on scarcity. Diamonds are rare and there are misconceptions out there as to how rare diamonds are. And this notion that some of the big mining companies have warehouses full of diamonds. And, and, and the reality of the situation is over the last 30 years, the industry has gone through some major changes. So, you know, this, this notion that you kind of have this cartel like body operating you know behind the scenes influencing the entire market that's not quite true anymore so wait is isn't there a limited supply of diamonds absolutely so so that this is the point i was getting to um diamonds like any other mineral or gemstone or anything you can remove from the ground are a finite resource so the the output of diamond mining efforts all over the world peaked in 2017 so every year from here on out, there'll be fewer and fewer diamonds being pulled out from the ground. So diamonds are becoming more rare, right? So if your if your business interests are in the in the diamond mining side of the industry, um, you, you want to protect those interests and, and bad mouthing man made products that are right. identical at an atomic but, level. But even if they weren't bad mouthing it, everyone talks about the unique thing about NFTs is that they are so rare that it's not that it's not that they're gifts that you can save. It's just that the one that you bought is considered a rare item. I, that seems fake even and ridiculous, even as I say it out loud. But but it is the the rarity that makes people covet them, right? So there's definitely an element of the of the story that touches on on rarity and scarcity. There's the fact that they were forged in the deep inside the earth a very, very long time ago, billions of years ago. I, in the trade, I, I actually probably hear more people pointing to that aspect. The fact that these are, you know, older than anything we know, um, you know, older than humanity. That part of the story comes through. It, it, 
imbues the entire concept with a, a sense of romanticism. And, and, and that sense of romanticism is completely devoid in the, in the regular lab-grown space. You know, and this is, this is one of the epiphanies we had early on, and that's the angle we wanted to take. We're bringing a really truly sustainable and romantic story to the diamond trade in a way that, you know, frankly, we think it's a story that lands much better with today's conscious consumers than anything that points to the fact that the diamonds were forged inside the earth one to multiple billions of years ago. I so, do think that makes um, sense that there are people, I think my wife is one of them, who who seeing the world become cleaner is more valuable and more meaningful than knowing that what they have is, is rare. All right. So I guess that's I mean, that the rarity uh -huh. comes with a price too. You know, something, something that you really can't sidestep. There are significant environmental challenges associated with extracting anything from the ground. And then you have a, a I think pretty well known human rights concern associated with diamond production and, and, the challenges with pulling diamonds from the ground in, in parts of the world um, that have been popularized by Hollywood movies and, and even terminology, calling things blood diamonds and conflict diamonds. These, these things still exist today, right? We, you know, the, the industry banded together and developed something called the Kimberly process to help stem the, the flow of illicit diamonds into the global trade. It still happens in 2022. So at the end of the day, you, you can't procure a diamond. And frankly, by definition, when 30% of the world's, uh, world's supply of diamonds comes out of Russia and is partially state-owned, any diamond coming out of Russia is supporting what's happening in Ukraine right now. Any diamond coming out of Russia is, by definition, a blood diamond, right? So if you don't have the right controls in place, and this industry largely does not, you don't know where that stone necessarily came from, and, and there's no guarantee that you're getting something that was sourced in a truly responsible manner. All right, let's talk numbers in. What's the revenue so far? You've only been, what, selling for less than a year? Yeah, we've been in market for, they call it nine months. Okay, what's the revenue? So we, we launched, uh, we, we started with consumer pre-orders. So it was D2C only. Uh, we have shared this publicly, so I can, I can speak to it. Uh, we generated a little over $2.6 million in pre-orders. Um, yeah, there was some... Uh, wholesale stuff mixed in there as well. So, I mean, it netted out to shy of 3 million. But it's mostly um, online have, sales that we're looking at. Well, that's correct. I would say oh. entirely, on, entirely online, online uh, sales. We are now just in the process of introducing our first wholesale program. We brought on a new VP of sales. who uh, has been with the company just for a couple of weeks now. And, and we're, uh, we're, we're very excited to be rolling that out in, uh, in advance of the industry-wide trade show that's happening in Las Vegas this summer. All right. Um, and then how much of that have you sent out? How much of your orders have you fulfilled? I'd say uh, probably roughly around a third. Okay. All right. Let's understand how you got here. You're a guy who worked in the jewelry industry. How'd you get in the jewelry industry? I tripped and fell backwards into jewelry. I was someone who uh, was very interested in electric vehicles when I was doing my engineering undergraduate degree. And uh, I thought I'd end up working for a company like Tesla. Yeah. Um, I graduated in the height of, of the recession, and uh, unlike you know, some of my classmates, I had a job lined up. Um, I started working in the architectural home hardware space, um, developing and manufacturing jewelry for your home. So ornate doorknobs and hinges, finials, lock sets, some faucetry. Uh, I ended up shifting from a product development role into a manufacturing role. 
uh, built out a large format metal casting facility for the company I was working for and mm-hmm. oversaw all of our casting production work and, and uh, manufacturing and product development are directly related, but they're not the same. And I knew my passion lied in product development. Um, so I started browsing the internet to see what other job opportunities might exist. And I found a pretty cryptic uh, listing for someone with metal casting experience and experience with small metal findings and componentry. And I said, Hey, that sounds like something I might be uh, well suited for. And I think three or four weeks later, I was, I was starting my, my first job in the jewelry industry as a product development engineer for David Yerman. Uh, and I read your LinkedIn profile. You were helping to create men's jewelry there. Am I right? That's correct. So David Yerman sells men's and women's uh, historically. I mean, it was, it was a women's line. They introduced the men's line, um, yeah, a little over a decade ago, and uh, it's been wildly successful. So it was really exciting to kind of get in there somewhat early. Um, you know, be you know, it, there was this kind of transition that David Yerman internally as a company went through, where they started bringing on engineers and you know taking something that has largely been a very artisanal process for millennia, and you know turning into something that's empowered by rapid prototyping, three, you know, whether it's 3D printing or 3D scanning, tabletop milling, and that enabled us to do some really new and interesting things that you know, were new in the industry. I think part of what I got really excited about uh, with my time at David Yerman was introduction and development of products that used materials that were not previously endemic to, to the world of, of fine jewelry, um, composite materials, organic materials, uh, asteroid uh, or meteorite, I should say. Uh, once it lands, it's a meteorite. <laughs> um, so we, we we got to do some really interesting stuff on that front, and and you know really that's where I cut my teeth. I could see how you'd enjoy it, especially a person who wanted to work at a company like Tesla. One of the things though you told me before we got started is that the industry is kind of stuck in its ways, intentionally so, right? The jewelry industry, the diamond industry specifically. How did it come across to you when you were working in it? I mean. If you're not seeking mentorship in this industry, it takes a very, very, very long time to understand kind of the lay of the land and how things work. And by definition, I would I would call this a very uh, it can be it can be a challenging landscape to navigate. Uh, I, I joke sometimes the only thing transparent in jewelry are the gemstones. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's it was built that way it was intentional so i mean it shouldn't be a surprise that that's the way it is and you know a lot of the companies that hold sway over you know trends in the industry and have a lot of you know purchasing power and 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 can ultimately steer you know the way we kind of go collectively um those companies have all been set in their ways and they've all done things the same way for a very long time. It's an industry that's just been ripe for disruption. And I think lab grown diamonds over the course of the last decade have really come in and in a big way and, and have shaken things up and, and people who were hardline mine diamond only supporters 10 years ago have changed their tune. And it's, it's at this point, it's, it's only a matter of time before, you know, those, those other laggards, you know, come around. Um, and I think in that we see opportunity. Okay. And so we were talking about how you met somebody at this company who ended up being your co-founder, Dan. The two of you were talking about the industry in general. How did that lead to you coming up with the idea for Ether? Dan and I sat, you know, all of six feet from each other when we were at David Yerman. He was working on the women's line. I was working on the men's line. 
I think we bonded over a mutual appreciation for motorcycles and fast cars and uh, quickly became friends in, in addition to colleagues. Our first actual foray working together was while we were both employed for David Yerman, there was a component we were developing for one of our men's bracelets. We mm-hmm. could not find a supplier that was able to produce it. And on, on one random day, Dan says to me, you know, I have an LLC, you know, that I don't really use. We could become a subcontractor and we could produce this widget uh, for David Yerman. I said, hey, I mean, that's a really interesting idea. Let's let's run up the flagpole. So that was actually our first foray into working with with each other. We uh, we would have manufacturing parties at my loft apartment in in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and on you know Saturday mornings we'd have some friends come over, and I you know we would feed them bagels, and you know <laughs> we would listen to music, and we would manufacture these little widgets in uh, in my apartment, and that worked out really well. Uh, and then you sold leaving. it to David Yerman under this LLC that he had. Oh, no, this wasn't even, this was a standalone project. It wasn't a business per se. Got it. What um, was the widget it, that it you was were selling? So it was actually, it was for a woven paracord uh, bracelet that we had done. And we couldn't find anyone to do, you know, this basically, it's a flat knot. It's, you know, and it would range from six and a half to eight and a half inches, depending on what size of the bracelet was. And then the, the metal components would all be installed onto that. And we couldn't find anyone that would manufacture it. I had developed it. I had designed the, the, you know, the weaving and the process for sealing the nylon ends of the, of the rope. Um, so I was going to be involved in the quality you know, control process anyway to make sure that everything was up to snuff. And I said, I said, you know what? It makes sense if we just do this ourselves. So we, we literally had, I think it was uh, four or five weekends in a row out of my apartment in Brooklyn. We, we did these little manufacturing parties and uh, it worked out really well. We were able to hit a price point that our, our you know, employer was happy with. Uh, we made a little bit of money you know, for our time and, uh, and it worked out. And that's, that's where I knew I could work with Dan directly, you know, outside the confines of, of another company. And, you know, you fast forward, it was probably six years later, five and a half years later, I had, you know, started my, I'd left David Yerman, started and sold my first venture back business. And we were catching up on life, kind of musing on different problems we had seen in the industry that, you know, I had left jewelry. That's where I started my career. And then I, I went into tech, like, hardcore software and hardware development and my outlook on the entire world having done that for half a decade changed and this I, is I wanted to apply that this is fuser yes fuser so what is fuser i saw it on your linkedin company. well imagine taking tony stark's iron man helmet taking all of that really interesting situational awareness technology that was built into this uh, fictional device and and take that and install it into a motorcycle helmet form factor so we were building some of the world's most advanced motorcycle helmets in of all time. Uh, full color, eyes up display, uh, crash detection, emergency response. Oh, uh, audio, I know, think connection. I saw in it on LinkedIn. Yep. Uh, yeah, we had we had one of the first unlimited range VoIP based communication uh, protocols for action sports use. So you know when I'm riding my motorcycle with some friends. If you were utilizing our communication platform, instead of being Bluetooth based, where you maybe as soon as you're a quarter mile away, you lose connectivity, you know, you get separated by five miles, our platform still worked. Oh, wow. How much did you sell it for? Um, we never disclosed the sale price. Um, okay. So I, I believe that NDA is probably still active. <laughs> What's the phrase? Is it uh, life changing money that you sold it for? Uh, no, I, I, for me, 
I don't think, uh, I, listen, we got a return for some of our investors and it was more of an aqua hire type of thing. Uh, there's much more to that story. Um, it was a, it was a good ending. Um, it wasn't, uh, a home run on the, okay. on the, uh, on the What's baseball the challenge scale. challenge with that? So I interviewed the founder of Scully. I don't know if you know them. They also had this helmet, I right? I know Marcus. He's an amazing person. Um, and I remember running through San Francisco, seeing that building that he had that was just, I think, just sitting there with his logo still in sitting dog there. Patch? Sorry? Yeah, dog, you in, know it. I've been to the office. We almost bought Scully. Ah. <laughs> So yeah, they, they obviously ran into some financial issues there at the end. And, uh, yeah, we almost, we almost came in and bought it. But when we looked under the hood, there, there wasn't a lot there. There were, there were definite troubles in the interview, in the, in the business, which made the interview really interesting, but I still don't understand why this is not an accepted built in part of every helmet. Like why hasn't this stuff taken off more? It makes so much sense and still no one's done it. So the group we sold our, our uh, company to, they still own the IP uh, without multiple pieces of that IP portfolio. I don't think anyone would be able to really commercialize it. We had the best tech in smart helmets. Uh, not to discredit what, what the Scully team did, um, you know, we ended up bringing on their CMO uh, after Scully kind of dissolved. Mm-hmm. We brought him on and, and he ended up working with us. You know, they did a lot of great things. They certainly helped serve the, the broader smart helmet concept in terms of building awareness. Um, the tech, frankly, didn't work. Their tech, um, okay. and anyone who's a lifelong motorcyclist uh, can tell you that having to divert your eyes down and take them off the road mm. is horrible. When when it comes to biomechanics, our eyes work much better at looking in in your upper peripheral. Uh-huh. Uh, if you if you were to look right above your computer screen right now, you can still see your computer screen kind of in your peripheral. Oh, I see. But if so you were, go if you were up. to look down at your keyboard, you lose your yes. you lose your screen. So that's how our eyes work. Ooh, that's weird. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You see that, So if I'm looking up at the ceiling right now, I can still see you moving your hands and smiling. But if I look down at my computer, you're right. I can't. Yeah. Okay. And so you went up, they went down. But still, I don't see this built in. Why isn't this just a standard part of every cyclist experience? The major helmet companies, the major helmet companies that exist do not even have, they don't have a single technical person on their staff, right? Their their technical side is mechanical and it's material. It's not... They don't have software engineers. They don't have hardware engineers. They don't have optical engineers. They don't have a CTO who can even diligence this technology. Okay. So we ended up working with several of them. Um, a lot of our revenue actually came from B2B stuff behind the scenes, more so than even just with consumers. Um, I will say there here in the US, uh, there is an extremely litigious landscape within the world of power sports. Um, motorcycle helmet manufacturers have gone the way of the Buffalo, at least domestically. Uh, there are several here that are that are still mm-hmm. kind of doing it in a, in a decent way. Uh, almost no one manufactures here, but you know there were people who would get into a motorcycle accident and die, and then their their estates or their families would go and then sue the motorcycle helmet companies because that helmet didn't save their mm-hmm. lives. It, 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 there are extremely deeply rooted liability concerns in that market. So the big players are really not able to to embrace this fully. And at the same time, the startups that are trying to break into the field are having trouble developing and commercializing the technology in a practical manner. So it's a matter of time before you see it. There are a couple of companies that we're, we're, you know, I'm still keeping an eye on just because mm-hmm. I did this for five and a half years and it's a, you know, it's a big part of my life. And, and uh, I know the CEOs of a couple of those companies and I, I hope that they get there. Um, 
mostly because I'd love to see them have to license some of the IP that we developed and then sold off. Yeah. Uh, I still have those patents, you know, framed on my wall. Uh, there's a little bit of, of that pride of authorship there. Um, yeah. I, I will say scaling that technology and getting it cost competitive is going to be a challenge. The motorcycle market in particular uh, is a really interesting market because you've got guys who spend a lot of money on their bikes, a lot of money on their gear. Yeah. The amount of people that spend a lot of money on their helmets, even though that's the thing that's keeping them safe, mm. is strikingly small. You know, when, when there are companies out there, uh, Ruby was a, was a really well-known company. Uh, they had a whole bunch of issues unrelated to the brand and, and, the, and the, the helmets, but they were $1,500 helmets just because they have, you know, suede and leather and really interesting materials and celebrities in LA were riding their motorcycles with Ruby helmets. They had a cool logo. Um, and if you're, you're willing to spend $1,500 on a helmet like that, maybe you should also be willing to spend $1,500 on a helmet that's got all this technology. But yeah. the amount of pushback that you got from, you know, the diehard motorcycle community was, was just, this is way too expensive. You know, for them, $500 is expensive for a helmet. It boggles the mind. You know, I, 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 I know of guys who are, you know, lifelong riders who are as enthusiastic as anything who ride $40,000 motorcycles and they refuse to spend more than three or $400 on a helmet. And then I see them with these really nice motorcycles and these really chintzy looking phone holders. And that just takes away from the cool of the experience so much. All right. Um, it's, let me take a moment, talk about my sponsor, and then we're going to come back into Ether. My sponsor, as I told you before, it's um, it's actually not even a paid sponsor. Their sponsorship ran out, but I just love the people over at Lemon. They're a company that helps you find developers. They could find you a developer within 48 hours. If you're not happy with them, they'll find you another one. And the reason that I'm doing this now, even though their ads ran out, is because they're a great company that happens to be based out of uh, Ukraine And the founder's been texting me as he escaped Ukraine. He's been texting and tweeting about what he's doing to keep his company going. And one of those things is he's continuing to pay his people. So if you're looking to hire developers, contact him and he will help you find a phenomenal developer. Despite what's going on in the world, they still have great developers. And he and his team, wherever they happen to be, will find those developers for you. And uh, if for some reason someone on his team can't work, he will continue to pay them throughout this difficult time because he wants to support his company. And so I thought, I'm just going to continue to support you. Um, His name is Alex. We followed him in the tech industry as he went from zero to a million and then from a million and so on in revenue. I think his latest goal was supposed to be 10 million. And then he suddenly, you know, there was a war and he decided that he wasn't going to be able to hit that. Though, you know what, Ryan, it seems like he might still hit it anyway, because so many of us just are supporting the company and because the guy is not resting, he's either going to collapse at the end of this or come out with this whole new um, way of thinking about challenges. All right. Either way, if you're looking for a developer, his problems are not your problems. Your problems are you need to find a developer. He will take on your challenge in addition to all of his and find you phenomenal developer. I mean, really, if you don't love them, you do not have to hire them. If you hire them and you're not happy, they'll replace them. All you have to do is go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. That's lemon.io slash Mixergy. Really Google them, look them up on Twitter. You're going to see people who've hired from them are incredibly happy. But um, people who know the company like I have are incredibly lucky to have them as friends. All right. Thank you, Lemon. Say thank you for sponsoring, but thank you for not sponsoring. (laughs) Thank you for sponsoring back in the past before all this happened. 
dude, you know, the guy, Alex from Lemon, I said, what, what are you doing? Why didn't you leave Ukraine before? And he goes, leave it. I came back from Germany from vacation to Ukraine. I had no idea this was going to happen. So, yeah, so floored by the whole experience, which also there, I'm now in Texas, Ryan, and there's so many people who are waiting for the end of days in whatever capacity that means. The end of days could be religiously, which is less and less, or it could be lack of food the way there was at like um, the early days of the pandemic, or it could be the government can tell you not to, uh, that you have to be vaccinated. And so they're worried that they're going to have to go and bunker down. So many people have these bunker down mentalities and they're developing their 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 life backup plans at home. Really amazing, phenomenal entrepreneurs who I've interviewed. I talked to them in private. They're setting up their, their prepping facility. Um, and I would laugh them off, except I saw what happened to Alex. He just comes back from vacation and his whole life is turned upside down. So maybe I should have some extra rice and beans and other other things prepared. You're in New York. New Yorkers aren't preppers. There's no room for that, right? I, I Technically, I live in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Still the same thing. There's no room but, for prepping. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the 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 hustle and buzz of life in New York keeps you in the moment. Um, plus, I, I don't know if you'd have any room in a New York City apartment to store much of anything. That's what I'm thinking. Like, so the new place we're moving into has a few acres. I think, you know what? I think I could plant potatoes and onion. There's this incredible VC. We were talking in the early days of the pandemic, and he goes, "I'm going to be the person who prepares for the worst. I'm planting potatoes." I go, "Dude, you're you're a VC who wouldn't even dare to fly business class. It's got to be first class. You're going to plant potatoes." I I got to go back and check and see if he ever did it. I don't have the heart to bring it up and say, <laughs> "Did you end up planting potatoes?" Just in case, I got to do that. Um, all right. I love that a lot of this came to you from a book. We were talking before we got started about that. Um, partially because truthfully, I've been feeling a little bit like all the reading I'm doing is not helping enough. Why don't I just turn to YouTube for solutions to everything? And then I talk to you, I talk to other entrepreneurs, and you have these major insights from reading books. What was it that you got? What's Drawdown, the book that helped you come up with a new idea? So Drawdown is a it's an anthology. It, it breaks down... Uh, all these different types of projects, both you know, natural climate solutions and, and engineered climate solutions surrounding uh, the removal of carbon dioxide uh, and other greenhouse gases from our atmosphere. Uh, at the end of the book, there's a, there's a part that you know, nods to new things coming. And, uh, and, it, and it talks about the Climeworks facility that was being built in Hinville, Switzerland, just outside of Zurich. Uh, book was published in 2017, and, and I think uh, the tail end of 2017 is when when that plant was commissioned and, and operational. Um, and here I am; I was reading it in you know probably end of Q1 2018, so not not terribly far after that. And and I, I finally get to the end of the book, and I read about this direct air capture technology, and, and I had no idea that we had ways of chemically removing CO2 from the air. You know, if we if we know we can do that, what would stop us from just ramping that kind of technology up and solving the climate crisis like that? And uh, and ultimately, there are there are economic challenges. It, it costs money to operate that equipment, um, comparable to other methods of removing carbon dioxide. It is more expensive, and then you have the challenge of doing something with that carbon dioxide so that it doesn't escape back up to the atmosphere. How do you permanently sequester that? Um, so, you know, those two challenges were, were 
very real in 2018. They are still very real today in 2022, but some of that's changing. And, uh, and I hope that we're going to play a role in that. You know, ultimately we came into this at, with that aha moment. Like what if we could take this abundant and harmful form of carbon that it's warming the planet and transform it into a beautiful and, and covetable form of carbon that warms the heart. And, and it was literally on a phone call with Dan when we were, you know, riffing on ideas surrounding challenges in the jewelry market that might have a, a, a business you know, hidden somewhere in there. Uh, it was on that call where, you know, we, we got to talking about air quality. I mentioned direct air capture and drawdown and, uh, and, you know, the, the light bulbs went off and, and we got off that call. And for the next week, I couldn't stop thinking about making diamonds from air. And Dan calls me up a week later and he says, Hey, Ryan, I can't stop thinking about making diamonds from air. And, uh, and that was three, three and a half years ago. And here we are making diamonds from thin air. Oh, it looks like you're muted. So Andrew. I'm trying to understand what would it take? I don't know anything about this business. I, I don't even know. I, I don't know the first thing. Can you explain it to me in as basic way as possible? What does it take to get the carbon out of the air? And then what does it take to turn that into a diamond? So uh, there are different direct air capture technologies, but generally speaking, you can think of it as, you know, almost a vacuum cleaner with a filter. But uh, if you think of like a coffee filter when you're making your coffee in the morning, um, that is stopping the physical particles from going through the filter. Okay. Direct air capture uses chemical filters. So you, the air passes through this filter and that filter chemically bonds to the CO2 that's in the air. Okay. So going in one side is ambient air from the atmosphere and coming out the backside of that machine is air minus CO2. Okay. And now the CO2 is stuck in this, think of it as a, a, a spider web, right? It's stuck there. Okay. The way this works in, in a number of different applications is you seal that filter in a vacuum chamber. Okay. You pull all of the air out and the CO2 is still stuck to the filter. So now you're in this empty chamber with this filter that's saturated in CO2. Okay. You can heat up that chamber. And as soon as you get to 100 C, the bond between the CO2 and the filter breaks. Okay. And now all of a sudden that chamber, instead of being filled with a vacuum, is now filled with a bunch of CO2. Okay. So it's just carbon dioxide that. in there. In there. Yep. Okay. And you can pump it right into a tank. And now you've got a tank of CO2. Okay. All right. And so that they were able to do, you before you ever got on the scene, right? Correct. Okay. And so then now that we've got the carbon dioxide, the CO2 in a canister, what does it take to mm -hmm. turn that into a diamond? So uh, there are two ways of making a diamond in a laboratory. Um, both uh, traditionally have relied on fossil carbon. So that fossil carbon comes in the form of graphite, which is dug up from the ground, or uh, methane, which is sourced from fracking or from uh, the crude oil refinement process. So you, you can, you can use those, or you can take this CO2 that comes from the atmosphere that was generated from burning those types of carbon, uh, hydrocarbon sources, those fossil fuels. And we're essentially taking this old air pollution that's up there. We're, we're, we're taking it down through that process I mentioned earlier, and then we're converting it into those things. So it's reverse combustion, essentially. Okay. Um, when you burn, Methane, it releases CO2 and water vapor. 
Okay. What we do is we basically take that CO2 uh, and then we take hydrogen and then there's a reagent and we are able to reassemble uh, the, the atomic uh, components into a new compound. So okay. you have what comes in is CO2 and hydrogen and what comes out the other side is CH4, which is methane and O2, which is just elemental oxygen that gets vented off to the atmosphere. So our process re releases pure oxygen to the atmosphere, which is good for you, me, and anyone else who has lungs. And then we're left with this CH4. So essentially eco-methane, methane that is derived from the atmosphere 100%. And literally we making diamonds that. from air. Correct. Every Sorry, atom keep that going. makes up every ether diamond comes directly from the atmosphere. So it goes from the air into a bottle of CO2. We take that CO2, we convert it into our eco-methane, our hydrocarbon, and that hydrocarbon goes into the chemical vapor deposition reactor. And this is where okay. this part is really cool. Um, it's basically a near vacuum. Inside this chamber, you've got some small little thin slices of diamond. And they're there to serve as a blueprint of sorts that will teach the rest of the carbon that's about to be introduced into this environment how it needs to assemble itself into this crystal lattice. So you've got these small little postage stamp seeds, if you will. You pump in that hydrocarbon gas that I'd mentioned, our eco-methane. You bombard it with uh, essentially microwaves. The microwaves are tuned to a frequency that excites the hydrogen and the hydrogen turns into plasma. So now you look in this window and there's a glowing ball of plasma in the chamber and it's being fed by this CH4 that's getting pumped into the chamber. When the hydrogen turns into the plasma, what happens to the carbon that was part of that CH4? It starts to precipitate down like snow falling on your back porch during a snowstorm. Okay. And just like you can watch the snow growing on your porch over the course of a few hours or a few days, the carbon builds up. And at the end of the month, what started as this small little postage stamp is now a cube of raw carbon crystalline carbon. And you can take that cube, you slice that seed off, you use that for your next batch, you take the rest of it and you cut and polish mm -hmm. it into the beautiful diamond gemstones that we all know and love. And then how much energy does it take to create that? And what does that do to the environment? So it definitely does take a lot of energy. And this is one of the gripes I've had with lab-grown diamonds in general, where people try and just position a lab-grown diamond as an environmentally sustainable alternative to mine diamonds at face value. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. Most lab-grown diamonds that are produced on planet Earth are coming from parts of the world like China and India, where they're not using zero emission mm. energy. They are burning coal and, and there are significant emissions related to that and happening in areas that have underserved local energy grids to begin with. And those electrons could be going to do, you know, other things that would have probably a greater net lift for, for society in those regions. Uh, we are extremely proud to be using zero emission sources of energy um, and going beyond just our own uh, baseline need. We are investing in additionality. And really what that means is we're taking some of our profits and we're helping build new solar plants around the U.S. We have a, a great partner called Clearloop. Um, we essentially become a financial partner and they are building new solar farms in parts of the, the U.S. that are underserved from a renewable standpoint. Okay. And this is phenomenal because not only does it bring jobs to areas where, you know, jobs might be needed, um, but, you know, uh, real spend. Think about like, you know, you're building a, a large solar farm, you need to put up a fence. 
there's a million dollar fencing contract that comes with that. So bringing money into these areas like Appalachia, um, you know, that have a history heavily rooted in, in you know, coal mining. We now can say, hey, you know, maybe you were never really in the coal mining industry. You were in the energy sector. And this is just a different type of energy. And we're helping, you know, kind of get boots on uh-huh. the ground in those regions. So, and so you're uh, only we, using, we, you're only using what? Solar, wind, that kind of thing to produce your diamonds. Correct. All right. Yeah. Here's a the thing that I'm clear, wondering. Right? So we use mm-hmm. zero emission as, as the phrasing. It's not, uh, nuclear energy is not renewable uh, by definition, but it is a zero emission energy source. So okay. we say zero emission. All right. So I'm with you now. What about this? Did you talk to customers to see if they were interested in this? How did you know that if you were able to pull this all off? And I'm curious about how you pulled it all off technically, but how did you know that there'd be a market for it? Or did you? Like any good entrepreneur early on, I deluded myself into believing that there'd be a market. And I even after what happened before where gut feeling. Sorry, there's a bit of a lag here, but even with what happened before, knowing that it made so much sense for motorcycle riders who were investing in their bikes to spend a little bit on their helmet and they didn't, you still, you still had that same entrepreneurial delusion. I did. Uh, And I think you have to have that. But this time around, Uh we spent a lot more time validating the demand for something like this before actually going and devoting time and resources and energy. Um, And we did that just by leveraging our networks, talking to folks out there. Most people didn't believe that this was going to be possible, uh, which, you know, obviously made it even more exciting when we were able to crack the code, but uh, there was interest. And and we knew inherently firsthand from our time working for, you know, luxury jewelry brands that lab grown diamonds, regular lab grown diamonds that are made from fossil carbon, uh, that do not bring any real true sustainability offering to the table, those are going to be a really difficult, if not impossible thing for luxury brands to adopt because they've been positioned as an inferior product and that there's a, there's a incongruency from, from, a, from a perception standpoint with consumers, right? If you are a consumer and you have a high perception of a luxury brand and you have a lower perception of a regular lab grown diamond, those things don't jive well. So ultimately, we know that the unequivocal future of this industry is lab-grown in in nature. Uh, I mentioned peak diamond output earlier. We know over the next 18 years, half of the world's supply of mined diamonds is going to disappear. But we can't make lab-grown diamonds fast enough to backfill. So we're going to try collectively, humanity is going to try because, you know, there's significant and growing demand every year for for gem-grade diamonds, for industrial diamonds. We can come in and provide a luxury offering to those heritage luxury brands that would otherwise not have been able to easily adopt lab-grown diamonds without running the risk of sacrificing some brand equity. And that's, I think, the value proposition we provide to the upper end of the market. Got it. You're saying that there's going to be fewer and fewer diamonds available because we've already exhausted half the world's diamond supply. That means prices go up. That means a lot of people are going to be priced out of diamonds. That means the luxury brands still want to have a replacement at at their current price point. And the current lab-grown diamonds don't have the brand cachet that they're looking to be partnered with. That's that's what you noticed. There's no story with regular lab-grown diamonds. There's They, they are completely right. devoid of a story. And that's where if I could feel good about having a diamond that was 
made out of thin air and made the world a better place, then I would feel better about spending a little bit more on that because your diamonds are expensive. I mean, we're not talking no, about they're, cheap they're certainly options. expensive. Yeah. No, and, and, and nor do I think they should be. Um, everything that goes into what we're doing is a lot of work that goes into what we're doing. And the consumer who buys an ether diamond isn't just buying that diamond. Yes, there's a beautiful gemstone that they can show off and, and adorn their bodies with, but there's real impact that comes with it. And you know that that's a, a big factor into what we're doing and, 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 and our mission. I, I say quite often, uh, we're, we're not a company with a mission as much as we're a mission with a company. Everything that we do from a, from a commercial perspective serves the mission of, of having a true environmental impact. Yeah. And that's something that I, I don't think others in this market really bring to bear. Some might purport themselves to care. We say, put your money where your mouth is, and no one's doing that like we are. I think when I found out that I was going to interview you, I said, let me see what it would cost to get a diamond. Maybe I get a cheap one for Olivia, and then it'll it'll look expensive. I didn't realize, by the way, until after I got married, how much for the rest of your life people are going to look at that diamond and kind of size you up. And I do that for people, not on a regular basis, but some of my friends' wives have giant freaking rings. And I notice, and I'm not a jewelry person, and it's like a like my car is going to lose value and it's going to look ugly in a few years and I'm going to dump it for the same price. You end up with a ring that's going to blow people away for the rest of their freaking lives. And then judging by what I saw in the movie yellow in the TV show, Yellowstone, my kids would even probably dig up my wife to get the ring, to give it to their, to their spouse. It's that valuable and that emotionally connected. I would have spent like three, four times more on the ring. If I knew it was that, that impactful and that meaningful. Yeah, we've seen we've had customers come to us and say, you know, I, I want to upgrade. Uh, there's sentimental value in, in the original ring. So can you just repurpose the diamond and make a pendant necklace and, and then we'll do a new engagement ring and some will keep it and, and wear it for day to day use. And then they have a nicer, newer one that they wear when they go out for dinner or to an event or to a party. So, you know, we definitely see some some uh, some trends where, you know, folks look to, you know, reinvest in a, in a new engagement ring later on because there is an element of keeping up with the Joneses that's just built into this kind of consumerist society that we live in. And, I wish and, I, you know, yeah, I, it's, it's if a, I knew I would have taken it more seriously. I mean, I'm not driving my car into your house. I might as well buy the ugly car that I care about and then pay for the nice ring that's going to show up in your house and in everything that we do. All right, let me take a moment to talk yeah. about my second sponsor. It's a company called Send In Blue. It's an email market. Actually, I say email marketing, but Ryan, it's so much more. Uh, they do SMS marketing. They do landing pages. They basically have the whole package. And the reason that I'm talking about them is that email is an essential part of all of our businesses. But the problem with existing players is they're either super expensive because they have all the features or they start off really cheap and you say, all right, I'm going to sign up for the one that had the cute animal in the commercial on NPR. Great. What happens a few months later or a few years later when your email gets email list gets really big and then their prices start jacking up and you realize that's how they're paying for all those commercials because they keep jacking the prices on people as they get bigger. Or you want more features and they say, well, no, we can't have those great features like segmenting so that you send a different email based on whether or not someone bought or what they're interested in. We can't do that because that would confuse our average user and it's built for the average users now you're stuck can i say stuck because it's hard to move your email list to a different provider anyway that's why i say 
Start with the right email provider from the beginning. Do your research. I know you may not have heard of Send in Blue before I started yapping about them, but there's a reason why I'm yapping about them. My audience does research. They do sign up. And the reason that they're signing up is it's phenomenal software allowing you to customize the way you reach your audience so that you've got a sticky relationship, but one that actually makes sense to them. And then... The prices are reasonable at the beginning, and they're even more reasonable as you continue. If you want to start out and get a break on the price even more, go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. All right. So, Ryan, a lot of people would have read that book and gone, this is a great idea. Somebody should do this. But maybe Elon Musk in some point can do it. How do you get from, from reading it? to saying, I know the process, I can put to, I can put it together. Well, I literally walked to my bedroom closet as soon as I got off the phone with Dan. I, I have every single one of my engineering textbooks from my undergrad program. I, I never sold my books back. I bought them at such inflated rates. I said, I'm keeping these forever. It'll be the start of my library. Uh, I, I pulled out one of my old chemistry textbooks and I, I went right to uh, you know a section on, on uh, 160 year old chemistry, uh, Sabatier reaction. And that, that was the start of it all. Um, but I had, I had the wherewithal and enough of an engineering and materials background to, to start. Um, what we ended up commercializing, the technology is remarkably similar to literally what I sketched in my, in my notepad that day. Um, you know, that's kind of how we got started. I, I put that together. I went to my brother who's a chemical engineer and I said, Hey, Jim, can you take a look at this and tell me if I've got something? Um, he immediately recommended that I reach out to uh, Anthony, who was a classmate of his, who I met first time probably 10 years ago, right around the time I met Dan. And I remember him to be, you know, widely intelligent. I said, oh, yeah, we'd love to, I'd love to chat with Anthony. Um, the next thing you know, Anthony was telling me, yes, this is going to work. I think you're onto something and I'm ready to quit my job. Bring me on as a partner. And wow. He is now our third co-founder. <laughs> and then how much does it cost to put the whole system together to be able to create these diamonds? I mean, millions of dollars. How uh, tens of millions? Mul multiple? No, I wouldn't call it tens of millions. We've raised uh, we've raised about twenty one million dollars um, in the life of the company. You know, the the initial kind of like pre seed funding, uh, Dan and I really were coming out of pocket for. Um, then we raised our first round, which is a you know two point seven million dollar seed round. Um, you know, followed by a, a larger Series A, but most of the initial funding from, you know, the founders and then, you know, the, the seed round got us to the point where we could make diamonds extremely low volume, but make decent diamonds and prove that the science worked. And from there, you know, that was a major milestone that enabled us to go and, and attract further financing. Once you prove that you can make it, you're able to raise the next round and then it was time to show that you can sell it. How did you start um, selling? We are now aggressively scaling up. Well, we started with a, with a consumer pre-order launch. Uh, we launched in December of 2020. Uh, the day we launched, we were covered in Vogue. The day after we launched, we were covered in Forbes. Uh, the press we got in that first month was extraordinary. And you know that drove a ton of organic traffic to our website. And, uh, and that's how the whole thing got started. So it's, it's been you know, very D2C focused. And uh, we're, we're finally now kind of broadening uh, you know, our, our, our efforts and, and introducing wholesale. And, and we'll be working with independent jewelers and other brands uh, you know, over the course of this year and into the future. How, 
I guess, what, what were you doing to get so much press? I'm looking right now at the Forbes uh, article on you. It's got a nice picture of a giant diamond. Is that a diamond created by you, the really big fat one? No. Uh, there are now at this point multiple articles on us from Forbes, so I don't know which got one it. you're referring to. But um, <laughs> Is it, it just it, hiring may have an agency? The image. I mean, there's there's always some help, but you have to you have to do a lot of that internally. Um, Vogue, for instance, you know, the first major piece of press we got, um, I secured that piece myself. Um, I knew someone who was with Condé Nast. Uh, we started chatting. Uh, I had a, a, a writer in mind. You know, I'd done my research. There's a lot of value in, in doing that. Um, there's also a lot of value in having great PR partners, for sure. Uh, it's a part of our arsenal. Um, you know, definitely part of our strategy, and and I think. You know, you can have all of those pieces, but you still need a really cool story for people to be interested. And I think that's the one thing we have in spades. Now that you're going to go wholesale, what's what's the process there? So uh, we, we just brought on a new VP of sales who has been in the industry, has a book of business. Uh, he's got a Rolodex we can draw. Mm. And, uh, and that'll give us an opportunity to get out there with, with select retailers. Um, we're not going to have our own retail footprint just yet. Uh, that won't be too far out into the future, but you know, at the end of the day, starting with the right retail partners, and uh, and right now we're having some conversations with some really interesting kind of tier one brands who are interested in, in using our diamonds for their collections and their products. And I guess what you were telling me before was this is a small industry, so if you've hired someone who's sold into the industry, they know a big number, big percentage of the people who are there that you want to reach, and if they've got relationships Precisely. and they've sold, then they could sell yours too. Yeah, exactly. All right. I see you're just using a Shopify store. Like I feel like the most basic part of this whole business is the website. The hardest part is creating the diamonds. How long does it take to do it? Um, if it was linear, um, depending on the size of the stone, call it about 10, 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, we do them in stages. So we'll, we'll batch process you know, CO2 and then we'll batch process the CH4 and then we'll batch process the diamonds. So um, I mean, it could be as little as, yeah, probably eight weeks if it was completely linear and everything was vertically integrated on, you know, on, on, we took transit times out, um, yeah, but roughly about three months from when carbon was polluting our atmosphere to being worn on your finger. <laughs> right on. All right. Hey, you know, before we started, you were telling me about how you used to, like you were entrepreneurial from a young age. You used to even have lemonade stands. I'm going to take my kid and do more lemonade stands now that I see how, first of all, how much he wants to do it. And second, how many entrepreneurs that I've interviewed have had these little businesses when they were younger. Do you feel that influenced you? Did it, did it foster more of your creative entrepreneurial energy or not? Or was it just a thing? It certainly fostered it. It was an outlet uh -huh. for me. I mean, this is, I, I never sought out business ideas as much as they've just kind of materialized in the front of my brain. Um, lemonade stands were such a really easy concept for me to wrap my head around at five years old. And I recruited all you know kids from the neighborhood to help. And by the time we were nine years old, it was, we had a circular driveway. It was car washes uh, and, in the driveway. Little, and little kids pull in. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. Come in one side and out the other. And at that point, my younger siblings had, you know, we were, they were a little older at that point. So instead of employing like the older kids from the neighborhood, it was my brothers and their younger friends. And, you know, I was probably not paying them well enough and then pocketing, you know, a lot of the money. And, you know, I, I was flush at nine years old and my mom was like, where, where did you get all this candy? Well, mom, I all the money <laughs> um, 
it became buying and selling and trading Pokemon cards and, and Game Boy games. And then I it was one of my first you know, kids in town to buy a DVD or to have a DVD burner. And I was the kid who was bootlegging videos in, in, in high school. And, and there was always something I was doing to make, you know, to make money and embrace my entrepreneurial drive. And um, I lost track of that a little bit. Uh, when I was focused on my engineering degree and, and, you know, then all of it, I I, I was taking, so I actually went to school for finance for two years, Uh decided that my real passion was engineering. Um, I wanted to to switch over and our school, I went to, I went to a small Jesuit school in in Connecticut and while they had the oldest engineering program in the state, they weren't really equipped for anything but a four year track. And I'd already been in college for two years and I did not want to stay for another four. So I I basically had to beg and plead with with the Dean to allow me to do a modified schedule that would allow me to take a four year program and, and do it in three. So for the next three years of my life, I was doing 21 credits a semester, you know, working insane hours just on my classwork. And then I was also playing a sport year round. So my, my, I had no bandwidth to have a business to have. I mean, we did, I did a couple little things here and there, but really nothing that was, um, nothing that stuck. And then I graduated and I had student loans to pay off and I had to go get a job and I didn't know anything about startups. And it wasn't until, you know, 20, very end of 2013 into 2014, um, you know, when I left David Yerman and started Fuser that I got to really sink my teeth into startup mm-hmm. life and, and, and found my home. This is where I belong. And now you're even more bringing it to all together with Ether, like your scientific brain, your entrepreneurial brain, your creative side, the whole thing. Um, all right. I guess the best thing that we should do, if anyone's curious about this, they should go to it's etherdiamonds.com. Am I right about the URL? Absolutely. All right. And uh, I want to thank two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first is lemon.io slash Mixergy. And the second is, what was the second? Oh, send in blue for email marketing, send in blue.com slash Mixergy. Ryan, this is phenomenal. I feel like at some point we're going to look back at this moment and like, what's this? So Swarovski was the, the Swarovski. I can't pronounce them. How do you pronounce them? <laughs> Swarovski. Swarovski. And you're not the only one. <laughs> uh, they make those. When my uh, wife listens to this, she, she'll, she'll kill me for saying, but uh, she has this, the same, uh, you know, in trouble with that word. So you're not alone. <laughs> but I remember that there was a period there where they were not a brand name. They didn't make things. They were part of other people's products. And then at one point they said, we are going to become a brand name. And I thought the nerve on them, first of all, they're not making precious, they're not selling precious stones. And number two, they've got this name that's just so hard to pronounce. But now they've got retail outlets, they've got a reputation, they've got a name, and I'm the one who should be ashamed that I can't say it instead of, you know, them for sticking their name on uh, on a brand that should be a little bit more, I don't know, easier to pronounce. They've just done amazing. And I feel like I remember still the first news story that I saw about them going out there. And I feel like this is going to fit in the same spot in my head. The first story, the first time I got to meet the founder of Ether. And at some point, hopefully you'll, and I expect based on everything I've seen, you'll be as ubiquitous, if not more. Let's hope. Right on. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks. Bye, everyone.